Today on the podcast, we are so lucky to have Russell McCuller. Is that how you pronounce it, Russ? Uh, McCuller. McCuller? Excellent. On the podcast. And if you don't know Russell's background, I'll let him talk about that in a bit. But he's, I first became aware of Russ when he wrote an article for Firehouse Magazine. I think it was Firehouse. When I was doing some research on, you know, the old 15 to 1 safety factor kind of, uh, you know, information that's out there. And I don't want to give away too much because he's going to do a great chat on it on the podcast here. And as I started doing that research and talked to a few more people, it just became really apparent that we needed to bring him onto the podcast and have him speak to the listeners directly about some of these, I call them maybe myths in the fire service. So why don't you give us a bit of your background? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, I have been in the fire service now for 20 years, and I was a kid as an outdoorsy type. And uh, in college, I got involved with uh, the University Outdoor Recreation Program, American Mountain Guide Association, top rope site manager. Uh, so I was taking students out, and I really loved, you know, the crags and uh, alpine climbing, crag cl- climbing, a little bit of multi-pitch. And uh, after I graduated, I got into the fire service and I took my first rescue class from CMC and it, it just really struck a chord with me. And, uh, and lo and behold, for, for the next 20 years, rope rescue would be my passion. And uh, I tell people all the time that I'm a lifelong student. Every time I think uh, I've, I've accomplished uh, the classes that I want to take, I learn at a class about another discipline, another class, another way that people are doing rope rescue. Uh, so that being said, uh, I was on the line for 10 years as a firefighter. Uh, I was training guys part-time. I took a full-time post at the Mississippi State Fire Academy as a rescue instructor. Now I manage the rescue programs for all, all the 1006 certification disciplines for the fire academy. Uh, some of my pet passions, I'm uh, Sprat level three, uh, I love teaching. I volunteer with the National Cave Rescue Commission uh, and, and volunteering and going and teaching all over the country and seeing all kinds uh, and, and really mentoring under a lot of great uh, rescuers in, in that uh, profession. Uh, so that's that's my passion is, is teaching and learning. Uh, and then writing and researching has kind of become ancillary to that. And that's why I'm here kind of giving this talk is because I spend a lot of light nights in the library at the National Fire Academy digging up a bunch of cobweb covered periodicals and and figuring out why we do what we do. I'm really, I'm happy to hear your background. I mean, rope access, uh, mountain guiding, caving, fire. And it fire wasn't first. And it, you know, it's more than just top-down rescue. And I think you understand that. So it's great to have somebody with that breadth of knowledge on here because we have listeners that are in the tactical world and in the, uh, you know, more wilderness SAR world. We have listeners that are rope access. So, you're not just coming from a point of, hey, I'm a fireman or firefighter. You're coming from a point of someone that's definitely seen rope up and down quite literally. So I appreciate that. Yes, sir. It's funny the paradigm shifts I've seen because I, as from the recreational side, it was single rope and we didn't wear helmets. And then we got the fire side and there's two ropes or really thick ropes and we wore helmets and gloves all the time. And then later on in my career, I would get back into the the cave rescue side and there's some instances in the cave rescue world 
this still call for single rope technique uh, and much skinnier rope than the fire service typically uses. So yeah, I've seen it kind of go back and forth. Yeah, it's interesting that way. It's um, doing some climbing and stuff in my youth. We used to only wear helmets when we went to the Rockies because, you know, it was older rock and you had to get the flake offs there. You know, out here in Squamish and stuff, we wouldn't wear helmets because it was really unlikely that rock was going to come, let alone the guy's lunch that comes down the hill or the guy or you taking a swing. Like that never came into our thought process, right? Um, so what we're going to chat about today, you do a talk and it's going to be not the entire conversation at this point in the podcast, but you do a talk basically around the development of vertical techniques in Europe and North America, how that spilled over into professionalized rescue leading up to an incident in 1980, and then those deaths in the 80s and how they revolutionized the equipment, regulation, training, and kind of get to where we are today. Am I kind of hitting the nail on the head there? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that, that, that sums it up very nicely. You know, you know more about it than I do. Sounds like you got a plan. <laughs> I'm just reading what you said. So it's in preparation at all levels oh, yeah. there. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. Let's let's start it out. So uh, just preface this, you know, I have a lot of great mentors out there. So the culmination of this research and this talk is uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. There's a lot of great uh, instructors and thought leaders out there uh, that I've met in my cave, uh, cave rescue world, uh, rope access world. The International Technical Rescue Symposium, uh, and one of those great, great men that turned me on uh, to a lot of this information was Steve Hudson of Pigeon Mountain Industries. Uh, Steve, Steve was a mentor, and I met him uh, in Eiders and in the cave rescue community first, and uh, and I pinched a lot of good info from him. Uh, so that being said, uh, there are a lot of people had this before me, and I just uh, took it all and put it together and validated the research. But some of these things are, are my own conclusions. So I hope, you know, when I give this talk that uh, I don't step on too many toes or offend anybody because like anything else, you know, you do have researcher bias and, and regional bias and I only know what I know. And there's certainly things that I don't know out there. But did, did, I don't think it's going to Yeah, hit me, hit me. I'm about to say, you're not from New York because everybody I bring on from New York seems to step on toes. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but carry on. Yeah, we're, we're, we're Southern, Southern hospitality. So hopefully, hopefully this will, uh, this will stay above board, but I don't think it'll surprise many listeners. You probably heard early on that, uh, the techniques that we use as rescuers, they originated, uh, in mountaineering and, and cave exploration back in the mid 20th century. And the, the reason was we didn't have anything that standalone as a profession, as a community of technical rescuers and, and people working on rope. We didn't have anything of our own and there weren't any standards. So we, we had what they had. So we borrowed stuff from those communities. And even though uh, a lot of the things that were being used to explore were being made in, in homemade shops uh, in, in the 50s and 60s. So you can imagine some of the great caves that were explored uh, in Europe at the time, they used cable ladders. Like you see people climbing out of helicopters with, you know, uh, so imagine doing way deep cave exploration on nothing but cable ladders. We're here in the States. We were exploring caves with all kinds of crazy stuff, but, uh, but climbing out, we were using three prussics. You know, the, the three prussic climbing system was the, the method of choice and they're using laid ropes and natural fiber ropes. And, and we didn't have widely available kern mantle ropes back then, but where where my uh, my my thesis on why we do what we do 
especially in the early days, has a lot to do with the geography of the mountains that we were exploring. Think about Americans. Well, how do we, you know, Americans, North Americans, and I know I'm talking to also a Canadian audience, but we like it our way, right away, and we want to go fast, fast. So if you look in the Mecca of North American caving, which is, we call it PAG down here, the Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, tri-state area, the limestone is, uh, is stratified very vertically. So the water bored straight down through the limestone, and they had these gorgeous vertical shafts for caves. Well, you basically can throw a rope around a tree. You're, the rope touches the edge right there at the lip, and it's, it's a free fall pit. And it, most of our open air pits in the tag region are anywhere from 100 to 300 feet deep, uh, with probably one of the more well-known ones being close to 600 feet. 600 feet of a straight shot all the way to the bottom. We wanted to go down fast and go out fast. So the things that worked the best was things that were variable friction that could handle long drops. And the, the device that really took uh, the world by storm in 1966, John Cole invented what we know now as the brake bar rack. And back then it was the coal rack. Uh, I find one of the interesting things in my research is there's a nexus of when you have an engineer who is also a caver or an engineer who is also an alpinist, that's where great things happen in our industry, in our world. Well, John Cole was an engineer that lived in Huntsville, Alabama and was working for NASA. He was a member of a caving club and they basically built a rack by heating up steel bar stock on a barbecue grill and curling up the end of the rack into the what we would now consider the welded eye where you attach to the harness and then putting on square bars back then. And that was the first, what we call J-rack, a six bar brake rack, but it allowed you to have variable friction for long continuous drops. So keep in mind listeners, this is 1966. Meanwhile, let's jump across the pond. Europe, same thing, they wanna explore caves over there. That's what's going on. Uh, but if their limestone cave formations the caves, the water bore down through them, but they were subject to a lot of tectonic uplift. So the, the limestone layers were actually oriented diagonally. And limestone in Europe was much, much more abrasive, much harder. So the caves didn't go straight down. They went through a lot of really hard and abrasive limestone at an angle. So of course, one of the early cave explorers and manufacturers over there would be Fernand Petzl. And they were exploring caves and they had a different philosophy about it. They did not want their rope to ever touch an edge. So the technique that became in vogue was to rebelay the ropes, or now they call it re-anchoring the ropes. But they would use skinnier, soft, supple rope, and they would re-anchor it like little teardrops down through the cave system. And what that would require them to do is one, they had supple rope, they had soft rope, but they were also having to move through these re-anchors, these rebelays. So there was a lot of get on rope, get off rope, get on rope, get off rope through the anchors. So they needed something that had less variable friction and was easy to take on and off rope. So in Europe in 1968, Fernand Petzl uh, invents the simple and the simple would be a predecessor to the stop and the stop would be a predecessor to the Grigri. And as you guys know, the Grigri was uh, analogous and a predecessor to the Petzl ID. So the, same time, think about our country, you know, and Europe, 1960s. We want to go fast, fast, fast down, you know, long drops, kind of adrenaline drops. We want burly rope, thick rope, stiff rope that's not afraid of any kind of edge. So 
the rope that was being spun, Steve Hudson was making a 16 carrier pit rope that was super stiff and wiry, but was really conducive to long drops and tag and using brake bar racks. Meanwhile, overseas, we've got these really abrasive alpine caves and the style of rigging and techniques were, were very much the sit stand system like we use uh, today in rope access and on and off rope. So they didn't need a lot of friction. They used shorter drops and they, the simple and the stop with the descender of choice over there. So there's two competing styles. And I want you to think about that because, you know, fast forward to the end of this talk, I feel like the North America is under what I call a neo-Euro resurgence. We're getting back to the basics. And in, in truth, the European system of descending and ascending is worn out because that's what is most prevalent in rope access because of having to get on and off rope at re-anchors and, and rebelays and deviations. Meanwhile, in America, they were looking, they switched from uh, three prussic climbing systems to uh, ascending systems and quickly from ascending systems with just Jumars and Gibbs style ascenders to chest boxes and bungee cords. So that we call bungee rope, walk, rope walker systems, or double bungee rope walker systems and Mitchell systems that allow for super fast climbing out of the caves. So that, that's important because it's contextual. The reason our equipment is what it is and would get sucked up into the rescue community is because this is the style of cave exploration that was being done in the 60s and 70s. And the same thing was going on in Europe. That was a style of exploration being done in, uh, in that continent in the 60s and 70s. And, and some of those had distinct advantages and also distinct disadvantages. But ultimately, you know, here we are in 2020 and I kind of know which one won out. It's one of those, hey, I know the answer to this question. <laughs> yes, sir. So nothing, you know, if, if you're a rack lover, I, I still believe that for long continuous drops, the rack is probably the one of the superior repel devices out there. But uh, but that's what we were doing is long continuous drops here in the States. We didn't re-anchor and we weren't worried about abrasion resistance because our rope could take the edge because our limestone was softer. And we just threw down edge pad. That was just the culture. Uh, over there, it was taboo uh, to ever let your rope touch an edge. So everything was, was bolted and re-anchored. So that just gives uh, you know the, the listeners a little context of you know why we do what we do. So now I want to jump. Uh, I tell people that the modern era of technical rescue could probably be traced back to a singular event on a day, uh, and that's June 27th, 1980. So we had everything before. And, and when I give talks in person, I talk about early literature, uh, Tim Setnica and his wilderness search and rescue stuff, and what John Dill was doing with Yosar. Uh, of course, Ashley's Book of Knots and the Freedom of the Hills Mountaineering, you know, those were the only kind of texts and, and things that were out there before this era. But on June 27th, 1980, there was a fire in New York and two firefighters lost their lives. And it's important to understand, I think a lot of guys know a little bit about this, but maybe not a lot. And the person who imparted this to me, you know, in, in person was Steve Hudson. He told me uh, his take on it and, and his after action take on it. But basically, imagine a rope rescue that took place during a live fire writ mayday incident. And, and, and basically, all the things that happened around that incident would have implications on the equipment selection and standards that we use even today, 100% today. So basically, a uh, Frisbee was disoriented uh, from Ladder 28 on the seventh floor of a tenement apartment building. And 
he was hanging in the window and uh, he, he wasn't really responding much to verbal uh, commands. They tried to reach over to him from a party balcony. A firefighter sexton from Engine 93 was trying to shake him. Uh, There's Rescue 3 was on the roof. One of the members of Rescue 3, uh, Firefighter Murphy, tried to rappel down. Uh, and he wasn't really in a good fall line to do anything to actually aid uh, Frisbee. Then it, typical kind of New York operations, everything was done with a lower. So they put a rope uh, over the parapet. They lowered firefighter Fitzpatrick to get Frisbee down. Fitzpatrick was a beast of a man. He bear hugs Frisbee. He picks him up. And then the rope suddenly fails and single rope. Uh, and they fall seven stories to their deaths. So this, uh, this was a, a shock to the world. It shocked the system. Two firefighters died during a May Day. Now, it's, uh, it's hotly debated, and I'm not going to get into it here, but the kind of the company line is the rope failed, and there wasn't a really a rope management program in place or a standard. Uh, some parties debate, you know, whether the, the copping on the parapet cracked and cut the rope, or if there was lateral movement in the rope. But uh, nonetheless, it doesn't really matter what happened. Uh, to the rope, it failed, and uh, the world was aghast. So back then, before there were blogs and podcasts and social media and stuff like that, it was you know white papers and magazines, you know, and, and word of mouth. The media was not so readily accessible. So after that June twenty seventh incident, uh, the first thing that would happen, and Steve Hudson pointed me onto this, is the International Association of Firefighters (IFF) would write a white paper. And that white paper was completely a preamble. It was the architecture for NFPA 1983, as we at least, a lot of people, as they think they know it, or, or as it came to be uh, to widely uh, known for. So think about the fire and what inspired the paper. But that, that book, that uh, document is uh, called Line to Safety. And this is the one it took me a while to find. It was uh, dust covered in the library at the National Fire Academy. Uh, it only ever been checked out three times, and I copied every page of it. Uh, and, Twice and by you. It, you know, and yes, I was number three. I was number three. Another rope rescue guy who's pretty smart, who might be on the board of uh, Sprat. He was uh, the second person to check it out, and then somebody else before me. But uh, it hadn't been, it had never been checked out. So it, it, I think it would surprise a lot of people, you know, to know that in this IAFF white paper that went to all the, the brothers and fire stations throughout uh, North America, they said, you know, uh, one person load is 300 pounds and, and a two person load should be 600 pounds. And they also say in that document that you don't really know what happens to a rope when you use it. So a rope should be retired after each rescue. So one time use rope, that, that's where this document uh, started. The document actually refers to the Cordage Institute and the, the UIAA, and it talks about existing safety factors in rope rescue uh, that were at seven to one and 10 to one. And it actually says that they considered these safety factors grossly inadequate for critical rescue use. And you can quote me on that one and, uh, and go on to advocate a 15 to one factor of safety. So that's where we get, you know, a one person rope. So another, another piece of verbiage, a one person rope is 4,500 pounds and a one, a two person rope is 9,000 pounds. And kilonewtons weren't in the IFF document back then. It was all pounds. As my guy in the States says, right. there's people that use metric and there's people that have put people on the moon. <laughs> yeah. 
I know where I know I know the person that uh, this widely widely uses that. Uh, so so this white paper is out there and uh, it would give our community uh, fits and consternation all the way up till now. I, I still travel around. I spend a good bit of my time trying to educate people on the history of where this came from. It is legit. It's real. Even in the, the early versions of 1983 and the white paper, it's kind of written like a use standard and not only a manufacturer standard where now it's they do. They went to great length. 1983 is definitely written. Uh, as a manufacturer standard, but that, that's where it came from. Line to safety in 1981, that was, you know, admittedly published in the aftermath of the, the New York incident. But a little tidbit that not many people would know, uh, and, and only Steve Hudson told me, is that there was like an appendices in the back of that document, in the back of line to safety. And in that appendices, the, the brothers, the, the IFF, basically just are name dropping some places where you can get this equipment. So they, they name drop Anderson Manufacturing where you can get Anderson 8s uh, back then. They drew, dropped uh, two, two little companies. They were small um, mom and pop shops from some Georgia Tech grads in the Southeastern United States. And the, the companies they, they name drop were Pigeon Mountain Industries and Blue Water. And like we mentioned earlier, they, they were specifically res, um, mentioned that you can get Rescue eights from Anderson. Uh, they called it at, at the time. It's funny. We steal a lot of things. It, it was caving Kern mantle rope, but they kind of rebranded as rescue Kern mantle rope. But you could get it from Blue Water and Pigeon Mountain Industries PMI. Well, Steve Hudson told me that basically he went from making rope in his parents' basement to making seven miles of half inch rope a year. I'm sorry, seven miles of half inch rope a day on the looms. Had to lease space, grow their operation, but. Basically, there, if it wasn't for this white paper and its wide distribution, uh, and this little endorsement in the back, uh, Blue Water and PMI, Gibbs and Anderson, like they wouldn't be what they are today because it really got in a lot of people's hands. So it was kind of neat to hear that um, as much as much bad as, as this may have and confusion as may have caused the industry, uh, it also helped grow a couple of small companies that are that are huge staples in our business today. And just on the fact check note, I have a copy of that document and everything you've said on it is 100% true. They're all listed in the last page. Yep. Uh, so let's let's talk about, you know, what, what that document's going to do is, you know, in 1985, it took a few years, but the inter, uh, NFPA, National Fire Protection Association, would make their consensus standard on rope rescue, rope and equipment. And that standard's 1983. And it basically reads just like, uh, just like line to safety, all that stuff. One time use, one person wrote, two person wrote, 15 to one, all those things that, that give us fits now were in that document. So I, I say that it's real and it was written as a use document. It was in there. So there's a good chance that your training officer, your battalion chief, or somebody in your organization was taught a rope class when this document was the, you know, the, the knowledge of the day. That's the best we had. Um, What's kind of fun at that time is the actual meat of the document was only four pages, uh, where now NFA 1983 is, is north of 130 pages. So <laughs> there wasn't that much to talk about back then. It was connectors, you know, or as we call it, you know, carabiners and, uh, and rope. Those, those were really all there was. Uh, and now we have many, many more things uh, to worry about out there. Um, so moving on, like some of, some of the things that happened, 
when that doc at the same time the document came out and I, and I, I justify it is there was a huge void of, of knowledge in the world. I mean, it was just a vacuum. And I had a college professor tell me, you know, his take he said, ignorance is not knowing what you don't know. Well, I think a lot of thought leaders like Jim Frank and Steve Hudson, Louis McCurley, the, the rescue community, we knew that there was a big void of knowledge. And that void of knowledge was filled up by this document that is super conservative. That no one really knew what happened to rescue Kern Mantle rope made of nylon when you got gasoline on it, when you used it one time, when it was out in the sun, when it got spit or urine or tobacco on it, like CMC has, has tested uh, so many times. Urine. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're definitely. And they, I think they've even tested well hydrated versus de dehydrated. They've got both <laughs> kinds. Uh, but uh, but they, people didn't know what they didn't know. And to respond to that, um, CMC and uh, PMI and NASAR, basically it was at the time it was the board members of NASAR, the National Association of Search and Rescue, uh, they spun up a conference called NADERS, the North American Technical Rescue Symposium. And the inaugural year for NADERS was 1985. And it's fitting because 1983 comes out, it's, it's four years you know, after Line to Safety comes out and people start saying, hey, we need to know what we don't know. So if you're a first time listener, you don't know what, what this is, I found out that this is a jewel in our world, pretty much the who's who of thought leaders in our industry. Let's just call them what they are. They're rope nerds. They get together once a year in a hotel, in a, in a hotel convention area. And in the old days, they brought handouts and slide carousels. Today, they bring their, their PowerPoints. And they process. basically did pseudoscience backyard testing. And they started testing old rope and testing knots. What knots better? What belays better? What they, they started filling up that void. So we had this empty bucket, this void of knowledge that we, we didn't have filled. So it would start getting filled in 1985. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much the who's who over the years of, of rope uh, practitioners you, going all the way back to the early days of uh, Jim Frank and Steve Hudson, John McKinley, Louis McCurley. Uh, then moving on to Arner Larson and Reed Thorne and John Dill, uh, so many different contributors every year would they, they'd figure what is plaguing our industry? What's the problem? What answers do we not have? And they would do their best, you know, with, with their home, you know, jigs and pull machines and belay drops to figure that out and fill that void. So that started in 1985. And that's important because now a lot of that stuff is analogued. Uh, and archived online some of the older you know the slide carousel versions and handout versions have kind of been lost but we know some of the more famous presentations that took place uh but this is where we kind of start getting, getting getting juicy and i'm not sure what camp you guys fall into but one of the things i like to talk about is that uh what inspired me to kind of go down this path is as i would travel around the united states i started to look at rope rescue philosophies and best practices and the way people would tie knots or rig bridles or operate belays. And I realized it was really regional and colloquial. People of, you know, so, some areas were, were very tied to the tandem prussic belay. In other areas, you could see them put a, a munner hitch on. In other areas, you'd see them put a munner hitch, but there'd be a shock pack at the end of the, the munner hitch or a shock absorbing lanyard. But Everyone had a language and you could even see when there's a mix of language. So when I, I saw that, I wanted to kind of one of my goals, one of my career goals was to seek out 
where all this language came from and root it back to the source. And it turns out our family tree in the rope rescue community is pretty small. And when you trace it right back, it, it just goes back to uh, just a handful of people and really a handful of camps. So what I like to tell people is that uh, in 1985, it started what a really contentious time and there's kind of an East Coast, West Coast beef. I call it the belay wars because for some reason, people were so passionate about what they believed in and, and what philosophies they subscribed to and techniques they used. They took it really personally. So some of these naders, which would later change to eiders, the International Technical Rescue Symposium, they got dramatic. Shouting matches, knockdown, drag out stuff, you know, re people really acting ugly on, uh, on what they believed. But one, one of the, the origins was the British Columbia Council on Technical Rescue, which uh, uh, one of the more famous, if not notorious members was Arnold Larson. Uh, they would they would do a lot of things that would ch forever change our industry. Uh, frank frankly, they pretty much coined what we use as the Kootenai Highline system with all Prussics and the, the BCCTR and, and rigging for rescue. They would come out with uh, help to invent devices like the Prussic Minding Pulley, the Kootenai Pulley, the Radium Load Release Hitch. Uh, but one of the more contentious ones was the efficacy and, and stalwart belief in the, the tandem Prussic belay. Meanwhile, in the Southeast, amongst the cavers and, uh, and some of the industries down there, there are a lot of really staunch believers in the, the value and efficacy of the Munter Hitch. And they went at it. So you guys know the famous, you know, Sedona drop test and Denver drop test with John Dill and um, Hal Murray and Reed Thorne and Arnold Larson. Uh, they, they wrote their first paper and their first stab at it. And then there was a rebuttal to it. Uh, that was written out of the Rocco camp and the caving camp and the uh, Steve Hudson camp. And they, it was just, it was a, a contentious time, you know, so things like the whistle test and uh, how they did the jigs and, and whether or not, uh, I, I would say one of the things that's important to me as a researcher was, you know, whether the, the researchers had any kind of uh, researcher bias going into it. Uh, so I think now we can be a little bit better <laughs> and try to be a little bit more objective in our testing. But sometimes it's it's hard to remove your own personal preferences from your research. And that was what was going on back then. So there were 10 long years of a lot of knockdown drag out fights on what was what was really the best way to go. So fast forward a little bit, 1990, you know, we got the second version in the NFPA 1983. The more notable part of 1983 then is that they uh, advocated for third-party testing. So that's where companies like UL, you know, organizations like UL step in the mix. And I think that was one of the best things in the document or most important things for manufacturers is that third-party text uh, testing. We get some of the first books and, and really who, who better to write some of the first manuals out there. The first one with real wide distribution was in 87, we get uh, uh, Jim Frank and Jerry Smith wrote uh, the CMC Rope Rescue Manual. And then two years later in 89, uh, Hudson and Vines would come out with their first manual. Now I've got both first editions here, both signed right here in front of me, but just to, to let you kind of in on, on what that was like was West Coast and Anderson, they, they leaned really heavily towards the, the figure eight and, and Gibbs. So figure eight belays for lowers, uh, rescue eight with ears, if you will. And, uh, and Gibbs for raises was a belay of the day back in 87 and one of the first widely published rescue text for fire-based rope rescue. Meanwhile, uh, Hudson and Vines, they were big advocates of the Munner Hitch, and there weren't pieces of equipment yet 
available, so also stick plates. So stick plates and Munner hitches were in Hudson and Vine's book and Gibbs and Eights were in uh, Jerry Smith and, and Jim Frank's book. Uh, started inventing some things around that, that time, 1990. Uh, you see that Petzl makes the Grigri for recreational use. Uh, and that, that cam design that was kind of spun off of the stop, that would, that would end up being the impetus or inspiration for the ID, which would come out about eight years later. Prussic mining pulley and the belay wars are still going on. Um, so jumping up to 1995, got five years later, kind of watershed era. Uh, first off, uh, I think a lot of people were surprised if you haven't heard of Sprat yet. Sprat was actually in, uh, the, it was formalized. It came together in 1995. And I think it would surprise folks to know that the original founders of Sprat were Jim Frank, Steve Hudson, and Mike Rupa Rocco. So Rope Access was born from rescuers. And now it's, it's taken this long for rescuers to start actually using rope access and their, their techniques. But that's where it came from in the first place. So these dudes, the OGs, I call them the, the original gangsters of rescue, they, they brought Sprat into the United States in 95. Uh, so again, ROCO, PMI, and CMC. Still fighting out the tandem Prussic belay. But uh, this is where I talked to one of your, one of the, the people I admire most in this uh, business is Kurt Moffner, right? So if you don't know kind of the, the, the deal, Kurt Moffner uh, would become the second owner. He was an, a neighbor uh, of Arner Larson up in British Columbia. Uh, they ended up on the same SAR team. And Kirk was basically, uh, as a cl rock climber, mountaineer, uh, was Arner's apprentice. And Arner would end up selling his company, Rigging for Rescue, to Kirk Moffner. Well, Moffner was a fortree engineer by trade. And, uh, and one of the things that happened in this time frame. And, and if anybody out there knows otherwise, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, he realized the shortcomings of the tandem play. He knew that you could operate it. There's human interference. You could operate it in a way where it would not work. Uh, and it kept him up at night. So this guy, again, an incredible man, he, he teaches himself to work all the machines, to do computer-aided design, and he invents the 540 belay. And, and if, if your belief is that a belay should be untensioned, a separate untensioned rope uh, and should pass the whistle test and basically be able to resist the, the misuse of a rescue operator, then the 540 belay is almost the perfect answer to that. But what makes it interesting to me is this is the first time really we have a widely used device made for a rescue problem by a rescuer. Uh, and, and it's the beginning. So that's that 540 belay is probably one of the most unique rescue tools. It wasn't a mountaineering tool or a caving tool or a climbing tool that was just usurped into rescue. It was made by a rescuer for rescuers. And it, it executed its job really well. It, it did its job really well. And a lot of people still have the, the 540 belays. Um, so it's kind of jumping forward. Uh, a lot of people would maybe be surprised. Uh, and, and let me take a little aside. Early days, the fire service controlled exclusively NFPA 1983, and this is this is what's just been related to me. Uh, Jim Frank and Steve Hudson would kind of stalk the committees outside of the, the the hotel lobbies. So, like the the actual definition, what a lobbyist is, they would actually spend their weekends and their weeks chasing down the NFPA consensus standard and trying to lobby the committee members outside the lobby of these hotels. Well, it took that long for them to actually get seats on 
1983 because they, they had an agenda. They wanted to see more reasonable uh, verbiage in there. They wanted to see it steered towards more of a manufacturer standard instead of a user standard. And most importantly, they want to drop some of that language about one-time use, one-person rope, two-person rope, and all those things that still haunt us. So the last time that those, those bits, those phrases that we don't like too much, went into NFPA 1983 was in that 95 edition, which it was in the third iteration, because we'll talk about next, the 2001 edition, they purged the document, all that stuff. But that, that's directly a result of the efforts and work of, of CMC and PMI and Jim Frank and Steve Hudson and their respective camps. So that, there we are, you know, I'm getting towards the, the turn of the century. And what's kind of neat, and I was talking to a friend of mine uh, that, that wrote, runs a rope access shop in Chattanooga, and he got his first Petzl ID given to him as a, like a demo at FDIC in 1999. If you guys have seen these, they're kind of fun. They're the blue ones, they're G-rated. They don't have the, the button on them. The side plate still opens. Like I said, it's it's cool piece. If you still have one, keep it put on your rescue mantle. But the, the ID uh, goes back to 1999. And that, that's important too, because uh, Petzl ends up making a, a push for uh, of expanding into the professional market and, and sees an opportunity there. But that descent control device has pretty much become ubiquitous for descenders throughout the rescue and rope access community for the next 20 years almost. Um, but this is the second big device, watershed device that was made, I feel, that, that had a big impact on rescue and maybe served a rescuer's purpose better than the brake bar rack. Uh, the other thing is uh, funny as a side note, when I'm showing people that are maybe only use racks or tandem pressing belays, an ID or something similar to an ID, like, oh, well, that, that's that new device. Well, think about it. When the fire service started using racks, the racks were only 14 years old. You know, Cole invented them in 66, and, uh, and they were endorsed by uh, line to safety in 81. So they, they weren't that old back then. So you, you fast forward now, people act maybe they're a little bit snobby. and say, oh, I don't want that new piece of equipment. Well, the ID is uh, 20 years old, and now there's 12 other devices that basically work the same way as an ID, you know, so it's it's not that new a technology. I think it's very proven technology. But the exciting thing in 2001 is, you know, Jim Frank, Louis McCurley, Steve Hudson, they got on 1983 uh, as, as both members and alternates, and they got that language out. So in between 95 and 2001, they got it out. So we've been unburdened, free of anything about safety ratios, safety factors, uh, one-person carabiners or one-person rope, all that stuff has been purged out of the document, going back now for exactly 20 years. Uh, so that's, if there's anything that the listeners take away from that, that's what I'd want it to be, is that the, the document's changed. And, and I, I work with manufacturers and I work as a researcher. And, and to me, uh, I think honestly, and I may talk, be talking out of turn, what, what matters more is the researchers understand what the end users are, uh, want and the manufacturers are paying, to, paying attention to those researchers and the end users. And now they're publishing a lot of the data that we were looking for all through the IDERS years, the, the you know, 80s and 90s. Now that's published in a lot of the tech notices with a lot of literature. So you, you see you know, drop tests with you know, one manufacturer's device with several different manufacturers kinds of rope. You see slow pull testing with one manufacturer's device and several different kinds of rope. They're publishing that data because they know via IDERS and NADERS the things that we as a rescue community are looking for. 
Uh, so it took 15 years of filling that void of, of knowledge of, of what the best belay was. And, and people see an opportunity. So you just say, well, listen, these groups are fighting about munner hitches and tandem prussic belays, and neither one of them are perfect. Let's, let's make something that, that does the job better. So then, then you get inventors like Kirk Mothner making the 540 and, and Petzl bringing the ID to market. Uh, th those things all, they happen because the manufacturers started paying attention to us end users where it used to be that we were taking sport equipment and using it for professional use. Now we have a whole lot of people making a whole lot of professional equipment specifically for our, our purposes. So, you know, by then people are writing a lot more books, you know, uh, one of the, the, the kind of more well-known fireside uh, rope books that came out was uh, Mike Brown. Uh, Mike Brown wrote Engineering Practical Rescue Systems. Mike Brown was a bat chief out of Virginia Beach who uh, just passed away, um, I guess, uh, in the last 18 months or so. But I, I had a chance to do a, an interview with, with Mike Brown. And uh, again, he's, he's inspired by uh, cave rescuers and engineers and, and eiders. A lot of what he got in his book came out of the International Technical Rescue Symposium. Uh, so we all go back, like I said, if you, if you follow that tree and you look at you know, some of the different thought leaders, um, and, and I don't want to leave anybody out, but uh, back, in, back in the, the 80s and 90s, you had Ropes at Rescue with Reed down in the Southwest, you had CMC Rescue School on the West Coast. Then you, early on, you had Rigging for Rescue that was up in uh, Invermere, British Columbia. They would ended up being sold to Kurt Mothner. And then later on being sold to Mike Gibbs and moving down to URA, Colorado. Uh, and that, that pretty much covered your, your big uh, houses on the West Coast. And then if you jump over to the East Coast, uh, Roco was really big in the industrial Texas oil and gas region, the Southeastern United States. And you had Bruce Smith and Steve Hudson and, and a whole other camp of people in the, the Southeastern Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia region uh, and teaching through the cave rescue community. And as you kind of track up the, uh, the East Coast, a lot of people don't know, but there's a, a strong connection between Rocco and New York. Uh, so you see a lot of the, the techniques, the industrial techniques that Rocco was teaching, stretching up that way. And then, of course, Virginia Beach with Spec Rescue International and Mike Brown and, and those guys. Uh, so at the time, those you, you could kind of figure out, you, you could look at a student, see what kind of techniques they were doing, how they tied their bridles, how they tied their anchors, what belays they trended towards or knots they used. And, I mean, you can spot a Reed Thorn student a mile away. Let's face it, you know, <laughs> uh, because you know, in some circles, bowlins were completely taboo. In other circles, bowlins were, you know, again. And, and I love, I love the bowling family. I love Reed's classes. But uh, you know, a person who throws down a a Portuguese bowling with a forward-facing loop, you know that that came from, you know, one area that that, that really put it out there and and made it uh, a big deal. Uh, so that's one of the things that kind of interests me is watching that our, our lineage, our little family tree going back to you know one place or the other. You got anything? Yeah, I've got some notes here. Absolutely. So um, a couple of questions I'm asking, and they're a bit rhetorical because I just want someone else to say them out to the listeners besides me in a way. So is 1983 a user standard? Yes or no? Oh, absolutely not. It's not a user standard. You know, it's, it's, it's intended for the manufacturer, you know, uh, in, in, in every bit of the way. And to me, the important thing is when it, when it has that stamp from UL, e even if it doesn't meet 
your applicable uh, NFPA standard when it meets uh, the uh, uh, an appropriate standard from UIAA or or EN. You know, uh, having that third party that that means more to me than anything. So yeah, 1983, 100% uh, manufacturer standard. So when the user goes, where do I find my standard? Where, where's the standard or the JPR I need to look for as a user? That's a that's a that's a loaded question there. You know, no. <laughs> what a lot of people are are surprised now. Depending on your state, you know, there's there's state laws that might supersede uh, might supersede you as the authority having jurisdiction making a decision. So there's some states that have adopted. Uh, OSHA or laws that supersede OSHA that basically adopt or mirror ANSI standards in there, and you are under that authority having jurisdiction, that, that applicable OSHA standard. For most of us, and I can speak for me, I'm a, a fire and rescue school in, in Mississippi. We are not a federal OSHA state, so as a state agency and municipalities, we're not covered uh, by Fed OSHA. We are 100% the authority having jurisdiction. Uh, I don't have any, any oversight. So the things that matter to me, again, are using equipment within the manufacturer's specifications and knowing that equipment is third party, third party tested. You know, th those are the those are the biggies. So one of the things that we've done is uh, I had a vision when I came here 10 years ago for where we wanted to be. And it took years to get there because the the southern states, they weren't really wholesale ready to abandon steel carabiners and half inch nylon rope. Uh, but today, uh, I'm proud to say that we're using polyester rope, auto-locking aluminum carabiners, T-rated gear, you know, 7 sixteenths, 11 millimeter uh, rope. And, and not for strength, because I'm, I'm, big, I'm a big believer in, uh, in the concept of force limiting. Most of our systems absorb enough forces. Our devices are engineered to absorb the energy we need to be force limiting. So we don't, we don't ever encroach or even, uh, even flirt with the idea of catastrophic failure because our devices are made to mitigate that. They're engineered to mitigate that. Uh, so yeah, that, that's where I'm at. Quality manufacturer, third-party testing, and I, I hope the listener lives in a place where you get to be the authority having jurisdiction. Right on. Um, the future of ropes, like we talked, have started out laid, you know, hauser, these types of things, got into the current mantles. Now we're getting some different materials in there. We've got the Technoras, the Dynamas, polys, nylons. Do you see us staying in the static current mantle, nylon, nylon, nylon 6-6 world sort of thing? Or do you see the manufacturers coming up with stuff that allows differencing of ropes or different ropes for different applications? Yeah, there's a, a lot of rabbit holes we can go down on that one. Uh, First off, on, on ropes, and this is just getting into my personal biases and, and preferences, is uh, my early days of building uh, tension rope systems, or aka high lines. I guess high lines are like a taboo. You're not supposed to say that anymore. But uh, in the early days, I used nylon, and every time, every third rider, we'd have to retension the system. You know, so I went to a, a big old PMI polyester isostatic, and, uh, and I didn't have to. Once I set it, even on the old Kootenay high line, I set it, it was good to go. Uh, so I really like the low stretch properties of the rope. That, that was attractive to me. Uh, and that, that's that's just, just, just me. So these days, our, our group, our agency, has uh, skewed towards uh, an all polyester rope. Uh, as an industry, uh, the rope 
type, size, carrier, all that stuff. I can speak, you know, from a manufacturer's perspective. That's the stuff that gives them fits in trying to get a device certified. I've I've kind of had a sneak peek behind the curtain for the development of some devices. And a manufacturer says, oh yeah, this is gonna be great. It's gonna be a one size device that can work on both, you know, half inch rope and seven sixteenths rope or 12, five mil and 11 mil. And when you get down to the belay drop, which is so stringent, the belay drop that ANSI and ASTM and NFPA put on us or impose on us, it was, uh, it has direct, direct lineage back to the British Columbia Council on Technical Rescue. And it's a 60 centimeter drop with a rigid 280 kilo test mass and it is hard to pass. So when you start getting uh, a wish for devices that fit both size ropes, it, more times than not, it doesn't end up working out. It's very difficult. Um, so, so that being said, you know, rope device compatibility, it's a big thing. But uh, I tell people a lot too that uh, you're, again, you're the authority having jurisdiction. The reason that rope can't work in that device or is not certified in that device is not because it can't be a pulley and a ratchet with that rope. It's because it can't be a, a, a 60 centimeter free fall drop on a rigid 280 kilo test mass. Uh, and, and not have the, a slippage over one meter, you know, th those kind of things. So, yeah, I think that uh, the end user is going to have a lot more choices in rope and, and some of the things they want. Uh, if you talk to the old rope uh, manufacturers like uh, Steve Hudson, his belief was, that, you know, he wanted nylon rope and made a good ride. He had a really tight weave on it. And the higher carrier count, the more supple the rope is, the lower the carrier count, the stiffer it is, generally speaking. Uh, so as our rigging style gets a little bit more in line with the European the rope access, uh, you've seen a, in North America a preference towards a more supple rope, a higher carrier count, so it has easier knotability. Uh, but I think that we're also, we're rigging a little bit differently. We're using a lot more artificial high help and natural high help, and we're not just throwing the rope over abrasive surfaces, and we respect those surfaces enough. Um, one of the weird things I think that... Uh, we haven't kind of gotten to yet, but as people start to flirt and explore with the aramid fiber ropes, the Technora ropes, I don't know if people really can appreciate uh, when you go high cyclic use, how much that rope is going to outlast the device. You're going to start having these $300 and $600 devices that get worn out if you use exclusively aramid fibers because that fiber is better than the, the aluminum and the steel that it's running in. So I think that uh, where for use, it has certainly has good applications and training. Uh, I think we should be really cautionary about the extent that we use the, the aramid fiber family of ropes. Okay. A um, couple other quickies here, maybe not so quick. Can we talk about Kirk and some of the stuff that he's created over the years? The MPD. Thoughts on the MPD? I mean, it seems to be... Yeah, so for time, I didn't really get to the last 10 years talking. Uh, the MPD came out in, uh, and it's a good good point. The MPD for us, we, we got our first one here at the agency in 2010. And it is about the time I came to the agency, we had an IDs as personal descenders and we had MPDs and we, we especially loved them at anchor stations and using them for control lines and reeve lines in our, our tension rope systems. Uh, and he, he answered a question again, a brilliant guy. He, he lays in bed and says, how can we, how can we do it better? So you don't know, Kirk, one guy, one guy in Canada laying in bed at night says, ah, you know, here's a need. I'm going to fulfill that need. And he makes the MPD. And then it's, it's manufactured here stateside uh, by TMI, Rock Thompson, Rock Exotica, if you will, and, and distributed by CMC. 
uh, and a brilliant device. And basically for the last 10 years, if you had an MPD and ID in rescue as a rescue school or a trainer, you were hot stuff. You were teaching everything that really mattered. I, I think, I hope I'm not, hope I'm not stepping on anybody's shoes when I say that, but those things were, were the best that could be had. And uh, what's intimidating now as a trainer is, for instance, we've taught with the MPD for years and I've had a lot of customers and fire departments and rescue teams invest in MPDs. Well, now, if you look at the marketplace, there's, I, I, I dare say a dozen things that do what an ID does. And there's four things that do similarly what an MPD does. Well, at, at what point as a trainer, do I spend less time with a customer? Even on, I'll just go back to Iraq. We're having a lot of heartache. Honestly, I, I teach in a rural state where we have 85 uh, career or combination fire departments. And some guys are well-funded and have dedicated rescue companies. Other departments are doing uh, fundraisers to buy turnouts for the guys. So there's definitely departments that are still Munter and Rack out there. So at what point as a trainer doing open enrollment classes, do I stop teaching the Rack? At what point as a trainer doing open enrollment classes, do I, I marginalize or minimize one descent control device versus the other? And the same thing goes to the MPD. The Maestro and the Clutch are outstanding and they, they definitely are poised to, to maybe eclipse the utility of the MPD in the years to come. And I don't think we're done, folks. You know, I, I think uh, I think it's uh, the the rate of acceleration of innovation, invention, marketing, distribution is is kind of scary for me. Because going back to what I, I mentioned earlier, if you had the ID and the MPD, you were teaching everything that was relevant. Now, as a trainer, I have to be judicious because I work, I'm a government agency and I try to be an unbiased tester and, and educator and researcher. But what what devices do I, I pick to show our customer base, our students? You know, it used to be I didn't have to make a, a decision. I could just show them the two kind of latest and greatest things and, and I, I satisfied most of the market. And now there's so much market competition out there. I really have to discriminate uh, and, and be. And that, that's that's the intimidating part for the next 10 years. If I was going into your house and teaching an industrial rescue team and I could just pick one thing and one way and one philosophy, no problem. If that team already had a philosophy picked out, no problem. But open enrollment where you have, again, I'm teaching government, uh, I'm a government agency teaching government students that uh, are at the, the will and pleasure of a municipality and their budget. It's tough. It's a really tough decision. And I think that's a challenge a lot of us as trainers have coming up. But yeah, the MPD, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And uh, it took it took 10 years for anybody to really get one over on it. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned Kirk and that human interference element to me. And what other mountain guide do you know that has like a CNC machine in his garage and a lathe? Like, I don't think he bought all that for just no particular reason. You might see a few more things coming out in the future. Um, you've kind oh, yeah. of, yeah, you've answered oh, my no, question. I, I, I certainly hope so. Yeah, you've answered my question a little bit about uh, where's the tech going. So thank you. You kind of jumped on that. Uh, just a, three more questions for you here. The ASAP. The new ASAP, the ASAP lock. Thoughts on that device as a blay? I mean, there's definitely that East Coast, West Coast, you know, Tandem Prusik, Munter, Super Munter. And now you have this ASAP thrown in here for rescue. Thoughts on that? Well, that's a that's a, another 
another, another tough one, loaded question. Um, I have a real soft spot for the ASAP as a belay. But one of the reasons, and full disclosure with some bias, is that we were using it as an anchored belay before it was an endorsed technique. And myself and Tom Penley and, and some others were urging the American team for Petzl to, to get some literature, basically get some verbiage out there allowing for what we were already kind of leaning towards. So it, it's such a whiz-bang device. It did so many things, it accomplished so many things that even, it, I tell people it saves on staffing. I can, I can go deploy, you know, two ropes with stopper knots over the pitch down to make patient access. I can go back and anchor those ropes on separate anchors. I can approach the edge on descent control with my ASAP and make patient access. And I've eliminated the whole skilled position of a belayer and any kind of human uh, reaction time, you know? So it, it saves me a person. And then we'll, even better, we can put it on the anchor. And much like what the 540 did in 1995, it, it resists, you know, as long as you function check it in the direction desired, it resists any kind of human error. Um, I think, you know, the biggest uh, heartburn, and this is where I hope it, people don't take it as a cop-out, but uh, I've got data on eiders, and I, th I think Tom Penley does too on, on the website, you know, dropping. Uh, I dropped, I think Tom did mostly 550 pounds. We would operate in the urban and industrial fire and rescue world. We operate 95 to 99% of the time with a, a top-based operation going over an edge. And that's, to me, one of the fallacies of the blade competency test is the test method doesn't match the premise. The premise is a, a litter bear falls on an edge and the test method is a free fall drop. And those things to me can't really coexist. They've never, they, they've never really reconciled. But I dropped 600 pounds through pulleys on the ASAP. I dropped 600 pounds through carabiner redirects at the ASAP. Uh, and had always very acceptable shock pack deployment. Talking about, you know, tearing stitches for less than a foot, full deployment, less than two feet, you know, very, very minimal. So I can't say this, you know, the manufacturer, you must follow the manufacturer's mm -hmm. guidelines. You know, you make sure you get me on a record, but you know, a lot of, a lot of fire dudes, so all, you know, it, it's not, it can't ever be G because, you know, because this or that or 600 pounds, but Let's face it, 550 pounds takes care of most of our two-person loads if we want to have an honest conversation. There's a lot of ways that we can execute our operations and our edge transition without actually having to use the two-person load. So that's my first choice as well. But uh, no, the, the ASAP is a super unique tool. It's a force multiplier for teams. It saves a position. Uh, it has less incidents of accident because of misuse uh, or reaction time. Um, I think it's a great tool. And, and honestly, I can't tell you the number of training hours we've saved and been able to reinvest in other evolutions and other parts of training in our courses because of the ASAP as a, as a backup device. So if we're just teaching repelling to a, to a student and they're not having to worry about belaying, using an ASAP as a backup device, it cuts our time down by two thirds on an evolution on a long repel. Um, and we've used it to back up firefighter bailout systems and, and just all kinds of problems at our agency, the ASAP's helped us solve. So I'm a big fan and, uh, and, and I've, I've done testing on it and Tom's done testing on it. And uh, it turns out Petzl US and Petzl France also, basically everyone said good to go on anchor belay up to 550. Now I wanted to, I'm a firefighter, I want to break stuff. So I pushed the envelope up to 600 and it still, it, it didn't even raise any eyebrows dropping loads on it at 600 with a snug line and a change of direction. 
But it's kind of funny, you talk about Kirk and, and Arner Larson. One of the things I think that's interesting about the ASAP that's yet unexplored is the fact that according to the old guard, uh, a belay can never have any tension. A true belay is an untensioned belay. And the ASAP is actually a device that doesn't have to be a two tension rope system, a TTRS, but it can sort of be a pseudo tension belay and still function 100% as a belay. And to me, the best of my knowledge is really no other device that's engineered for that and can do that. So even if you're holding a little back tension in the rope and maybe you're just handling, you know, uh, 25 pounds, 50 pounds, you, you know, you can absorb, you know, stretching the rope and, uh, and some of the load in that ASAP line. So it's, it kind of beats, you know, Reed Thorne and Kirk Mothners and, and uh, Arner Larson, I should say, the four belay archetypes. It's kind of like the fifth belay archetype because it really does do a belay, but uh, it can operate in a state of tension and nothing else can. Right on. Two questions, and they're still probably going to be multi-points, but um, four articles or books that a rescuer should read. Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, it it kind of depends on what you're into. Uh, and, and, and some of these are, are really obscure. Uh, so I'm going to, I have to, you may have to put a plug in here for it later on and do some research, but if you want an instructor resource that has everything you could ever need, but it, it wouldn't be necessarily a great textbook because it's just too comprehensive. I think one of my favorites is Steve Crandall's uh, from Heavy Rescue Rigging. He's got a rescue book and he, he's based out of Salt Lake City. Uh, he's a little bit West Coast, but he's kind of got the origins of a little bit of everything in his book. Uh, and he's, he uses B-Rigger and it's in color. It's probably better as an ebook, but I've actually printed it out in color and I use it as a desk reference. It's a great tool. Uh, it's got a lot of good uh, author voice in it. And he gives a lot of credit to where the techniques originated and came from. So in that same spirit, if you if you want to you know kind of be a an OG and read some of the, the good old stuff, I would say that you should definitely read Alan Paget and Bruce Smith's On Rope because that that was published in basically 1989. And what's neat about it is it it, it pretty much covers everything and anything to do with verticality at the time, but the author's voice is in the document and they go to great length to uh, to credit to where the technique was invented or the equipment was invented or who invented it. So they, they try to, they try to give you a little bit of the story behind the story. Uh, let's see what else. I'm, I'm just kind of looking around here. Uh, that's a, that's, that's a tough one. Um, we got the next one. All right. So if you are into rope access, the, the one I didn't talk about earlier was, uh, if you want to know where we do, why we do, I think it would shock the listeners to read a European book called Alpine Caving Techniques, ACT is for short. Alpine Caving Techniques, if you read it, it's hand-drawn and it's basically teaching kind of the national standard of cave uh, access and rescue and operations in Europe. And this is, this is a book that was, if I'm not mistaken, maybe the first edition came out in 1972. And the more recent edition that's been translated into English uh, is probably from the 90s. But uh, that book looks the closest thing to a Spratt manual that, that we should have today. And that's why I tell folks that uh, America, in my opinion, is under kind of a neo-Euro resurgence because uh, the cavers 
are, are now most American cavers are using European style of caving. European style cave rigging is coming in our world, rebelays and re-anchors, and of course rope access. So if you want to say cool ways to do the Spanish pendulum and to do pickoffs with foot loops and all that kind of stuff that everyone thing is impressed with and is whiz bang right now, it's old stuff, folks. It's it's all in alpine caving techniques from 30 years ago. So that's that's my number three. And then this is in no particular order. Um, ooh, like I said it's a, that's a tough one. I wouldn't say read it, but uh, kind of a, a gotta have. And I'm, I'm assuming that people who are listening to this, they probably have all of your, you know, big big house publisher manuals, your, your Jones and Bartlett and all that kind of stuff. But I think you need a hard copy. Uh, I, I know this sound, might be a little bit of a cop out, but I think you need a hard copy of Ashley Book of Knots. So I've got my own searchable PDF, you know, so I've, I've got one on a laptop I keep. It's a searchable PDF for when I'm on the road, but I, I keep a hard copy. And uh, there's a passage I like to read uh, in there, and I'm just going to paraphrase it, but it's it's on page 19. But he basically talks about how it's almost like a smart ass, like a firefighter. He says, a knot is not, you know, is not almost correct. It is either exactly right or it is exactly wrong. And he goes on to explain something as simple as a Flemish bend or a figure eight has exactly a hundred and, you know, whatever, 44 crossings. And if there's any wrong crossing, then that's not the correct knot. And it's really, he talks about this. So this is not, you know, just the, the panderings of a perfectionist. This is just a fact. And I just love that paragraph. So every time I start out a class on knot craft, and I love sitting around teaching, you know, 40 or 50 knots for a couple of days before we actually get out on the field and all. But I read that paragraph every single time. And everyone just hangs on and said, this, this dude's writing it. He sounds like one of us talking here, you know, busting each other's chops. And it was last published in 1944. <laughs> so I definitely would get that one as a desk reference. So that's, that's, my, that's my top four. You've got On Rope, Ashley Book of Knots, Alpine Caving Technique, and... Randall's. Steve's. And and Crandall's heavy rescue rigging manual, you know, and that, that's definitely a little bit more of the modern flavor for sure. Right, that's unfortunate. As a as a side note, I'm I'm kind of bummed out. It's uh kind of getting to a point in our in our culture where big big house publishers are taking over, and you really don't have the quality subject matter experts writing for some of those publishers that have really wide distribution, and uh, some of the other authors that really have a lot of talent. There's not a lot of be mon money to be made in the publishing, so they get pushed to the wayside. So um, not not necessarily as just any one text, but honorable mention. People who are still out there doing it that I have a lot of respect for is, of course, Tom Penley's field guides are always a great tool, and he's a great researcher putting out original content. And then so is Pat Rhodes. Pat Rhodes is uh, uh, one of the Southwest guys out of Phoenix, and uh, he's retired now, but he's putting a lot of stuff out there on Amazon. So if you want a fun read and, and some fun references, I definitely, people who are still out there doing it in the publishing world, uh, Tom Penley and Pat Rhodes. It's funny, you know, you mentioned the stuff about Alpine caving technique. Uh, if you go over to France or the French end of Belgium, when you do their Grimp schools, their um, IMP one, two, and three, it is still on stops and simples. It is still on re-anchors, re-belays. It is almost directly, like has it barely changed a bit from the cave and the Alpine caving technique books. And, and our international listeners are probably write me hate mail for this, but uh, one of the things, you know, the McDonaldization of American rescue, your, you know, your way right away. Like we want our rope to be this and we want our descent control device to be this and our sending system to be this. And it's, 
there's a lot of individual flavor in the techniques that we choose here in North America. And I think a lot of people will be surprised. It's very controlled and very nationalized in Europe where everybody wears the same kit and they do the same thing and they use the same devices. And they, they won't even let you go and explore caves in a lot of countries if you're not checked off using the standard kit and the standard technique across the board. So there's, there's a lot, it's a lot more homogenous over, over across the ocean than it is here. Here, sometimes it frustrates me, you know, when uh, I'm teaching a class and, you know, I said, I need somebody to go up and be patient. I'm going to demonstrate a pickoff and I get up and I'm looking at harnessing devices that I've never seen before still. <laughs> yeah. Um, last one here is just a little bit of a quickie and it's uh, just kind of a choose one or two. And it's always fun with you get guys with some serious rope background like yourself. So steel or aluminum carabiners? Aluminum. Auto locking or screw gate? Auto locking. Okay. Now, now, if you ask me two stage or three stage, I'm going to be, be a lot longer conversation. And then if you ask me, should it be three stage up or three stage down? Woo, you know. Well, my next question actually on the carabiner was pull down or push up. All right. So we, we elected uh, pull down our guys. And it's interesting. If you're using a European style carabiner, uh, three-stage European style carabiners were always on cow's tails. So you could put the carabiner and say attention. So the pull-up method was a lot more intuitive. Uh, here in the States, I think we have big hands and we rest the, the bottom of the carabiner against the palm of our hand when we open it. So we had a big debate. We just did a huge carabiner purchase and uh, around the office. And we, we wanted everything to have the same action. And we went three-stage down. It's interesting. I, everything I have on when I compete or do stuff with the, the competition team, everything that I have to reach and clip, I go down. Everything that I'm rigging to, so it's into an anchor and I've got tension on it, like you say, I go up. So I have the same mechanism both times because usually they're flipped. So it's interesting there. Um, ID, serious, or clutch? Well, I probably, I use the ID the most. I have the most reps and thousands of changeovers on the ID. So if I'm going to get in my comfort zone, uh, I'm going to use the ID. I have uh, my, my best friend and an organization that I have a lot of respect for just uh, went to the serious. And they think that there's a lot there. And, uh, and I'm kind of curious to try it, but I haven't, I just haven't done a lot of reps on it. I've just had it in my hands and played with it. And I'm really curious about the clutch. I've used it for rigging and I've demoed it and I've seen it in proto versions for years. Uh, but I, I will tell you, my plan is I'm going to research my Sprat 3 for the, the third time uh, next year. And I'm going to use all clutches and, and SAP blocks. So it'll be my first exam doing all clutches and ASAP blocks. No towable backup devices and no IDs. So I want to challenge myself and, and kind of fully immerse myself in the clutch. So yeah, if I get in my comfort zone, just what I've used for so long, it's going to be hard to ignore the ID, but there's definitely some interesting stuff going on with the, with the Sirius and the clutch. Right on. Just a couple more. 11 mil or 12.5? Oh, 11 mil. Slam dunk. <laughs> Which is interesting coming from the Southern United States. Oh yeah. And, and it doesn't, I don't care if it's G rated because I think everything force limits, you know, that, that's yeah. not. I think we're kind of at the point where we've done what we can do for minimum breaking strength. I don't think we need over 40 kilonewtons. You know, I think now as we go 
skinnier, the, the real question needs to be abrasion resistance. Because I think we get to a point of diminishing returns over the benefit of lightweight and skinny versus the, the loss of abrasion resistance and somewhat the loss of grip and hand. Okay, last two questions, and they're kind of like more fill in the blanks. Your personal preference on helmet? Uh, if I could, I'd wear a, an Ekron rock. <laughs> you know. There you go. Okay, and then um, it's it's really hot in the southeast, and we need a lot of ventilation. It's hot down here. All right, and harness, preferred harness. Uh, definitely depends on the job. Uh, our, I think my ver most versatile is a uh, Petzl Falcon Ascent with a top crawl large. It suits my fire and urban industrial world pretty well, and it can also suit my caving pretty well. The only limitation is because of the standards, it, it no longer can have that dorsal attachment. So if I, if I wanted to go for my all-around harness with a really good sit-stand stroke, it'd be a Falcon Ascent with a top crawl L. I'm running the top crawl small, but yeah, it's interesting how guys are ripping stuff apart now. So it's curious because we haven't had that conversation. It's uh, interesting when you go to places like Grim Talk with people like yourself, everybody's kind of leaning towards the same equipment. So it's uh, good. Well, is there anything else you want to add to this? No, this has been great. This has been easier than I thought. I appreciate your time, and, and you made it you made it really easy. <laughs> well, we don't, we're not, I'm not Barbara Walters or something. I'm not going for the 2020 luck here. <laughs> but I thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Absolutely.